Well, good morning to each one, and greetings in Jesus' name. It is good together to be together again this morning and worship the Lord. I also enjoyed our day yesterday where the church family worked together, the fellowship. That was good. So, For a message this morning, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. This morning for the message, I want to look at the first 21 verses. I want to look at it in two parts. First part is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then second part is God's beloved servant. The title of the message this morning, God's Beloved Servant. Matthew chapter 12, I want to read verses 1 to 14. At that time, Jesus went on, this, went on the Sabbath day. His disciples weren't hungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was an hungered and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you, that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might? And he said unto them, what man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he stretched it, stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Stop reading there. So when we get into chapter 12 here, we see once again Jesus having confrontations with the Pharisees. There are two incidents here. The first one takes place in a cornfield. And the second one takes place in the synagogue. We're told that Jesus and his disciples were walking through the cornfield on the Sabbath. And while they were walking, the disciples became hungry. And they began to pick grain from the stalks and, and ate it. Luke's account says the disciples began to pick some heads of grain, then they would rub it in their hands, they would shell it, and eat the kernels. And the Pharisees observed this. And they jumped right on this thing and they say, Hey, what you are doing is unlawful. So what is it about this that is unlawful? Was it unlawful to walk through someone's grain field and pick the grain? No, it wasn't. That was lawful. It was commanded that when the Jewish farmer harvested their crops, they were only supposed to go through the crop once. They were not to go back over it a second time. 
the law did allow them to pick kernels by hand from their neighbor's cornfield, but they were not to put a sickle into it or they were not to harvest it. When they would harvest, they would miss some and some of the grain would fall to the ground. And they were specifically, specifically commanded not to go back. They were to leave that grain on the ground. Or if they had a vineyard, they were to leave some grapes. They were to leave some for the poor who would come along behind the harvesters. It was like a welfare, welfare system built into the Mosaic Law. It wasn't a handout without working. The poor still had to go out into the fields and pick up the grain or the grapes. The farmers were to have a heart of mercy and care for the poor in that way. So the Pharisees were not critical of them for going through the cornfields. What they did have a problem with was which day that they were doing it on, on the Sabbath. They were doing this on the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath was a time of rest. The law basically said that Israel was to keep the Sabbath day, to remember it and keep it holy, which means to set it apart for God. They could work six days. They were not to work on the seventh, the Sabbath. And this observance was for Israel, a sign of the covenant that they had with God. The Jews had taken this simple command and added many regulations to it. Then they would look for loopholes how to get around it. The, the Pharisees judge spirituality and correctness by how well you keep the rules. Legalism makes no room for care in the provision of people, for provision in the care of people. The needs of people go by the wayside. And that is the point that Jesus is trying to convey. Even though the Pharisees are trying to make the Sabbath the point. They just aren't getting it. So we, verse 3, Jesus begins to speak to them. He says, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. He and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. I believe what Jesus is trying to convey is that you have read it, but you haven't understood it. So don't you remember the story of when David and his companions came into the holy place among the priests? They said, we need something to eat. We can read that in 1 Samuel 21. David and his men go and see the high priest. David says to the priest, we're hungry. We need something to eat. We need some food. And the priest said, no, we don't have any food here except the bread of the presence that would go into the holy place and would be put before the Lord, and they would replace this bread once a week. That's what I understand. And after that, only the priest could eat that bread according to the law. Jesus said, don't you remember all the reading in the scripture where David and his men went and took the bread that was only lawful for the priest to eat? It was given to them, and they ate it. 
I believe Jesus is saying, if you're ready to condemn me for what I did, for what we did, you're going to need to condemn David too. Also, he is calling attention to something else here. It's a ritual, or a rule was violated, and there were no consequences. Why was it overlooked? These men came in and ate this consecrated bread without any issue. Jesus is calling attention to this thing of human need. David came with an attitude of respect. He didn't come with a disrespectful attitude. They were hungry, and the priest gave them the bread. He met the need. Human need was more important than observing ceremonial rituals. The Pharisees had completely missed that. Five, Jesus goes on to speak of another situation. He says, Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day, yet are innocent? So on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day. That means they work. And we know the Sabbath was about resting. He says, don't you know that the priests work on the Sabbath, and yet you know they are innocent? And verse 6 says, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Here Jesus refers to the fact that God doesn't take a day off, relating to people coming to him and worshiping. The priests, they would slaughter animals. They took the blood of the animals and sprinkled it on the altar. They made all these other sacrifices, burnt offerings and the like. They did it seven days a week and even on the Sabbath. People are coming to God and God cares for people. God wants people to come to him. He is never unreachable. God is merciful. Verse 7, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned. Here Jesus quotes a very familiar Old Testament passage that they had read many times but never understood. Even in the Old Testament, God said, I want mercy, not sacrifice. They were hung up on this thing of sacrifice and what we must do. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Another principle we see here, which was dramatic, based on who Jesus is. Greater than the temple, even as much as they honored and valued the temple, even more so he is Lord even of the Sabbath. This was a direct claim to his deity. Jesus said that he had the authority to know if his disciples broke the Sabbath law because he is the Lord even of the Sabbath. So if you want to please God, you must have a heart of mercy towards others. Then in verse 9 and following, Jesus had the opportunity to teach by example where Jesus goes to the synagogue and we know what day they go to the synagogue. It's on the Sabbath day. Going from that place, he went into their synagogue. And what does he find here? He finds a man with a withered hand. 
it was obvious that this man had a, had a physical need. One of the other gospel accounts tells us he had been placed there by religious leaders to try and trap Jesus. Verse 10 says, A man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? In a response from Jesus in another gospel account, it says he sighed deeply. And in response to that question, Jesus asks them a question. He said to them, If any of you have a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How silly. Your sheep falls into the pit on the Sabbath. You will not go to great effort to rescue it. No, you'll do whatever you need to do to save the animal. Then he poses another question. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is unlawful on the Sabbath. He is answering their question. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then without further ado, he says to the man in verse 13, Stretch out your hand. And I'm sure everyone's eyes in the synagogue were on Jesus and this man. While they were watching, his hand became whole right in front of their eyes. He stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. Pharisees could have said, wow, that is amazing. You are the Son of God. But that is not what they said. After seeing this amazing miracle, the Pharisees, they get up, they go outside and said, this man must die. Because he is doing these things. On the but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Luke 6, 11 says, But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. They cared nothing about the fact that the disciples were hungry when they walked through the cornfields. Neither did they care for this man who had a withered hand. They didn't even care when he was healed. The Bible tells us we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. So here's a man who is physically restored. Something to rejoice about. And rather than rejoice with him, they walk outside. And they say, this man that done this needs to die. All they could see is the violation. They cannot see people with needs. And Jesus had already quoted to them one Old Testament passage about how God desires mercy, not sacrificing. There were a lot of other Old Testament passages he could have quoted as well. This is not the only place in the Bible that God desired mercy, that he himself was a God of mercy. I want to look at a few of those this morning. First one's in Micah 7, verse 18. It says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. God desires to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. 
When you deserve punishment, when you deserve the worst, God doesn't give it to you. That's mercy. You don't have to beg God to be merciful. God delights in mercy. Next one is Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Because God delights to show mercy, God wants us to love mercy too. The reason we do that is because of the mercy that He has shown to each one of us. If you are in Christ today, you are a recipient of God's mercy. Paul, in writing to Titus, says this, Titus 3, 4, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. God did not save me because of anything righteous that I have done. We are in Christ because of His mercy. God was merciful to you, not holding your sin against your sin against you, but forgiving you through Jesus Christ, His Son, who paid the price for your and my sin. And through His mercy, you are now saved from your sin. So this morning, we are so blessed by the mercy of God. But more than that, we should also be givers of mercy. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, verse, verse 13, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So how are you and I to forgive? We are to forgive as the Lord forgave us. That means we are to show mercy in the same way that He shows mercy, that He has shown mercy to us. We are to forgive like we have been forgiven. Are you forgiving in the way you have been forgiven? As recipients of these things from God, we are to turn around and show them to others. We are to be the kind of people who are quick to forgive, quick to show mercy, quick to bear with people. Sometimes we are quick to be critical, but that is not mercy. That's not the heart of mercy that God delights in and wants you to walk in. Jesus told us that we are His disciples. We are His followers by the love. Mercy for mercy. I received it, now I'm giving it. Does mercy get better with age? Do you find that the older you get... And the more life you live, the more ready you are to extend mercy. Is it because the longer we live, the more we recognize our own personal shortcomings? The reason I ask this is because of the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. That the religious leaders brought to Jesus, wanting to trap him. They bring in this woman, they say she was caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses says we're supposed to stone these people. Moses gave us a rule. And it says to stone people like this, but what do you say? If this woman was caught in the act of adultery, where's the man? 
what the law said they should both be taken away out to the city gate and be stoned. But they preying upon this woman. And she's not denying anything that they have to say. I don't doubt that it was a real situation. There was, in fact, an adulterous thing going on. But they drop her at Jesus' feet and say, what are you going to do about it? Moses says we should stone her. Finally, Jesus says, go ahead and stone her, but with one stipulation. And that is, let he who is among you without sin cast the first stone. The Bible tells us that they started to walk away. One by one. But it says they started with the eldest first. That is why I asked the question. Do you find that as you get older, do you find it easier to extend mercy? When we recognize that we are in fact sinners and we are greatly in need of God's mercy and forgiveness every day. Who walk in the mercy of God, who loves us and fills us with life, joy, purpose, and he forgives our sins. If you're living a life that is pleasing to God, in the sight of God, it's because of God. It's because of his power, his word, and it's his grace living in you. All right, let's continue in verse 15. Chapter 12 says, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. And charged them that they should not make him known. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Matthew quotes from the Old Testament. Prophecy more than any other of the gospel writers. He shows us Jesus the fulfillment of those prophecies. The book of Isaiah gives us many messianic prophecies. Matthew often quotes them. And he quotes one of them here. And prophecies like this given, like this in Isaiah, were given 700 years or more before Christ was born. And Matthew quotes them here in a fulfillment of that prophecy. It helps us understand that the Jews missed it as it relates to what the Old Testament prophets said about the coming of the Messiah. It also helps us to see his character in the terms of the spirit in which he came into the world. We are his representatives. You and I were called to follow him, to represent him. So there's several things I want to look at here in the next several verses. First one is, my servant whom I have chosen. Verse 18 says, the one I love and whom I delight. Another one is, I will put my spirit on him. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out until he leads justice to victory. Then the last one is, in his name the nations will put their hope. So let's look at the first one. My servant whom I have chosen. 
This is God the Father speaking about God the Son. Here we have this opportunity to listen as God the Father talks about God the Son. And he begins here by saying, My servant whom I have chosen. Why didn't God just say, Here is my son? These words are very similar to what God did say on two other occasions in the New Testament. At the baptism of Jesus, when Jesus came up out of the water, God said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then also later on the Mount of the Transfiguration, when Jesus was on that mountaintop with Peter, James and John, it says that the cloud enveloped and the voice of the Father was heard again. He said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. But here he emphasizes servant. Behold my servant. He is my servant. It reminds us that Jesus Christ came to serve. The one who had the right to be served. We know what it is like to be served. You go to a restaurant and the waiter, the waitress serves the table. They bring you what you need. And if you ask for more napkins and you don't get them, you most likely leave remembering, remembering that and the kind of service you had. But when God the Father says about God the Son, here is my servant, he is talking about one who is going to come and think about the needs of others. That is what a servant does. It's not someone who is out doing things while having a grumbling attitude. That is not the true attitude of a servant. A servant cares. A servant needs. A servant is on the lookout for potential to serve those needs. Paul has this to say about service in Philippians 2, 4-7. says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. This is the definition of service. He is thinking about other others. He goes on to say that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ. Here was the one who deserved to be served. He was serving. Being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, which means held on to, not letting go of my rights, but what did he do? He made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of one who serves, that heart of a servant. Let's think for a moment about what happened within the last 24 hours of Jesus' earthly ministry. Here we have Jesus who is about to go to the cross to die for the sin of the world. A man who has fed thousands. One who has miraculously spoken to tens of thousands with the word of God. Crowds have come around him. He healed them. Jesus is about ready to go to the cross. 
his disciples are sitting around trying to figure out which one of them will be the greatest in the kingdom. The Bible tells us that Jesus gets up from supper. He takes out his outer garment and wraps a towel around his waist. He gets a basin of water. He gets down on his knees and begins to wash the feet of the disciples. The job of the lowliest household servant. Jesus set for us an example of what it means to serve. His death on the cross was his greatest service. He did, and he did it for you and I. Mark 10, 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the life that you and I are to live. This is the attitude you and I are to convey. This is the heart you and I are to have. How can I serve? How can I give my life? Next thing we see here is this God the Father saying about God the Son. This is the one I love, in whom I delight, in whom my soul is well pleased. This word delight means or speaks of the delight or the pleasure of the soul. God the Father is saying about God the Son. He is saying he delights in my soul. He is the delight of my soul. What delights you more than anything else? He delights my soul, gives great pleasure to my soul. The love that is shared between the members of the Trinity. How often do you think about that? We think about God's love for people. God loves you. But let's think about this love of God in the Godhead, the Trinity, for a moment. God the Father says of God the Son, He's the one I love. My soul delights in Him. Before anything or anyone existed, when there was just God, there was communion, fellowship, and love. Within the persons of the Godhead, because we know that God has revealed Himself in the Scripture as being one God. There is only one God. But He has revealed Himself in three persons. Father, the Word made flesh, became the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they have always communed, always loved, always fellowship to the point where there was not a need within them to create others to fellowship with. Before God created the angels, and then later He created human beings, that wasn't born out of a need. That wasn't, there wasn't this loneliness or this need that we just need someone to love. Husband, husbands and wives come together in marriage. And there is a desire. There is a, this need for love. But that is not the case with God. All the love, the fellowship, the intimacy that was there was perfect. Our ideas of community, family, love, and intimacy all originate with God. They all come from Him. We didn't come up with any of that. It all originates in the person of God, the Godhead. Within the Trinity, there's this perfect expression of love. And it's that, it's that strength of God's love that exists within the Trinity that His love for us is based upon. 
that eternal love of God. The Apostle Paul tells us to ponder this love is life-changing. When we think about pondering the love of God, we being fairly self-centered human beings, Paul wants us to think about God's love period, which extends before there were any people to love. That love existed within himself. When the Bible tells us that God is love, he is literally telling that love originates in the person of God, and then it emanates out from that. Here's what Paul writes to the Romans. Romans 8, 38 says, For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul realized the love of God originates in the person of God. What happens in life has no bearing on the love of God because the love of God existed and was perfect before anything else came along. So these things that came along after God's love cannot affect God's love. God's love was first. It's perfect. Nothing can affect it that's been made because everything that was made came after. In Ephesians 3, Paul prays this prayer to the church in Ephesus. Read from the NIV. It says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. God's love is infinite, so it surpasses knowledge. Paul is praying that you would know this love of God because it is amazing and it will set you free. It was the kind of love that maintained Paul when he was in prison. He knew that the prison cell didn't change anything about the love of God for him. That love originates with God. Notice what he says at the end of this passage. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. If it were possible to know the fullness of God's love, we would be filled to full measure of God. Because therein is character and grace of God. Next one is, I will put my spirit on him. He will proclaim justice to the nations. The King James says, to the Gentiles. So the spirit is on Jesus without measure. One of the parts of his ministry is to proclaim justice. God cannot overlook sin. God cannot wink at sin. God cannot cover sin. He cannot ignore sin. Because God is just. Sin must be punished. How? The wages of sin is death. So we know that sin must be punished. We know what wages are. 
We know what the punishment is. It has to happen. Every person that has lived or ever will live on this earth will be judged. Every sin, every transgression will be judged. And here's the good part. In Christ, our sin has already been judged. God judged His Son on the cross with the penalty that we deserved. So what happened when God the Father judged sin in God the Son? Justice. Sin must be punished. He punished our sin in His Son. So now justice has been satisfied. The Bible tells us that 700 years before Christ came, it was prophesied that He would come and proclaim justice to the nations. He proclaimed it to you and I that justice has been met and satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. Someone had to die for your and my sin. The wages of sin is death. Next thing we see here is he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Here we see in Matthew 12 where the Pharisees plotted to kill Jesus. Jesus didn't make a fuss about it. He quietly moved on to another place. Crowds continued to follow him and he healed them of all their diseases. In this prophecy of the Father speaking to the Son, He said, A bruised reed will he, not, he will not break. In other words, He is not going to come in and finish the job. A smoldering wick He will not snuff out until He leads justice to victory. We're all familiar with a candle and how if you blow a candle out, it smokes. But on the end of that wick is a, a glowing ember. And you can snuff it out with your fingers but it says he will not snuff out a smoldering wick this is a word picture of how he is going to treat people people who are bruised people who are the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks they're the hurting the dying the broken hearted Jesus came to walk in a spirit of gentleness and tenderheartedness towards people whose hearts are hurting and wounded. Jesus understood what was going on in the heart of people. Sometimes the reason people reach out to hurt others is because they themselves are hurting. There needs to be healing that takes place. So if it's a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, he will not snuff it out. It shows us how gentle and tender-hearted He is. We see this in chapter 9 where he's of Matthew 9.36. But when He saw the multitudes, He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. They were pressing in on Him. Yet His response to the crowd was compassion. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is the reed. That is the candle wick that is about to fall off. He says, come to me, I'll help you. I will give you rest. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Next thing we see here in this prophecy is, In His name the nations will put their hope. In His name shall the Gentiles trust. Again, 700 years before Christ was born, the Bible tells us that the nations, all the world are going to put their hope in the Messiah. Hope is a powerful thing. Because if you're hopeful, hopeful, you can handle almost anything. If you have hope in you. Hopelessness breeds discouragement and a lack of desire to press on. People who plot to enter their lives come to a place of hopelessness. They think that they really don't have anything to live for. Their hope is gone. They're hopeless. Jesus is the hope of the nations. This hope will never let you down. The Bible calls it a living hope. It's not a false hope. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Our hope is alive this morning. And that, beca- that can't be taken away from you. The world that we live in needs to hear about that hope. Friday evening, Richard Morales shared stories of many hurting people, hopeless people, and how there are many hurting people in the world that need to hear the good news. They need to hear about that hope that we have in us. Tell them about what He has done for you, how He has showed Himself faithful and delivered you, and how that through Christ's resurrection from the dead, you now have a living hope. It's alive. There's a lot here in Matthew about how you and I can understand how we are to live and love and how we are to convey Christ to the dark world in which we live. May the Lord add His blessing. Let's have a song.